0: Well, happy Lord's Day. It's good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. The British are coming! The British are coming! So Paul Revere sounded the alarm about the advance of British soldiers to arrest the likes of John Hancock and Samuel Adams. The uh, truth is, those words were probably uh, never actually spoken, and the whole alert system was more of a clandestine affair taken up by 40 or so people. But, but the legend helps to serve our purposes this morning, so we're going to adopt it. The British are coming. It sort of sets the mood for our text. In a similar fashion, John the Baptist will say, the kingdom is Coming. The kingdom is coming. He is alerting everyone to the reality of the coming king and the need to repent and be baptized. He is preparing the way for the Lord. We're in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this morning, and the main idea is this bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The kingdom is coming. With that set up, would you please stand up in the honor of reading God's holy and perfect word. Matthew chapter 3, starting with verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is stronger than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would submit ourselves to your word. We ask that you would speak during this time, that you would give to us your Holy Spirit. It is only by your spirit that I can rightly divide the word of truth. It is only by your spirit that we as a congregation can hear it and apply it. It is only by your spirit that we can be born again unto repentance. It is only by your spirit that we can be joined to Christ and have the redemption he accomplished and according to the plan of the Father applied to our hearts. And so we pray, O oh great God, that you would meet us in this time, that you would reveal yourself to us, and that you would bring us to a deeper love for you, Help us to stand in awe of your your word and your work this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew has not abandoned his purpose in these opening chapters of his gospel. Remember we said he's sort of set up an authentication process, a little bit like when you go to the doctor and they ask you name, date of birth, phone number address right when you're answering all those questions at a physician's office they're just trying to confirm that you are you it's a little bit what matthew is doing in these opening chapters of his gospel he is helping us to recognize that jesus is jesus that jesus fits the profile of the prophesied king of israel he wants us to know that jesus is the true son of david who brings the blessing of abraham unto all nations. And so he shows us that Jesus has the right pedigree, that he fulfills the right prophecies, and that he has the right endorsements. And so chapter 1 gives us that genealogy which shows us Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is named Emmanuel because he will be God with us. Jesus is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He is the king who will deliver his people. In chapter 2, Matthew traces Jesus' geographical movements to prove to us that he fulfills prophecies. He's born in Bethlehem, the house of David, the foretold birthplace of the Messiah. He escapes the genocide of infants by King Herod, just like Moses escaped the hand of Pharaoh. He's called out of Egypt Just as Israel was called out of Egypt and into freedom, Jesus is called a Nazareth, a Nazarite. He's from Nazareth, and he will be rejected as the prophets before him. Chapter 3, we begin to see some of Jesus' endorsements. John the Baptist will endorse him as the coming king, and of course, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit will endorse him at his holy coronation at the conclusion of the chapter. Uh, But here at the beginning, the prophecy theme continues. Matthew wants us to recognize another prophetic voice that's being added to those who are calling Jesus king. And so he puts our attention on John the Baptist in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. When he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And so we go, well, who is this odd man who eats locusts and honey Who is clothed so oddly, howling in the wilderness about making straight the paths of the Lord. And if we cheat, we look at Luke's gospel and we learn learn a little bit more about him. He's a miracle child, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember, she was very old, Zechariah was very old, she was barren. And Zechariah's working in the temple, and an angel shows up and says, Your wife is going to be pregnant with a great man, you are to call him John. And Zechariah says, well, she's kind of old, I'm kind of old, are you sure? And then he's struck with muteness for his unbelief. He doesn't speak again until later on when he names John and he prophesies. And this is what he says, You, child, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 76, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. He tells, uh, speaks of John that he will be the child who goes before the Lord. This is an allusion to our scripture reading this morning and Isaiah chapter 40. John is the voice in the wilderness calling the people to make themselves ready for the Lord who brings comfort to them and reveals his glory. The king of Israel is coming to bring comfort and to bring glory, and there is John announcing his arrival. He's rolling out the red carpet. John is the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, and he is also the prophesied Elijah to come, who would come before the great and terrible day Of the Lord. That's what his dress and his diet are meant to tip us off to that he is a prophet like Elijah. He's dressed like Elijah. And he brings a message of fiery judgment like the prophet Elijah. We opened our service with a call to worship where Elijah called down fire on the enemies of God. And John the Baptist is cut from the same prophetic cloth. He is a herald of the coming king, a herald of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is proclaiming that the kingdom is coming and therefore repentance is required. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, The reason that repentance is necessary might strike us as odd. The reason repentance is necessary is because God's kingdom is on its way in. And with the kingdom comes judgment and justice and God's wrath. His wrath against sin that can only be escaped by way of trusting in God's providence this trust in God's providence that is evidenced in repentance. When I was a kid in kindergarten, I think they might still do this. Uh, We used to have show and tell. I don't know if you guys still have show and tell. And it's really foggy in my head uh, what I took in to show and tell about. Usually people brought various toys that they really liked. And so for for me, it was probably uh, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, right? I'm sure you guys remember those, right? Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Yeah, great, great stuff. you take that Power Ranger out and you'd show everybody and tell everybody about it and they would have a little window into your soul. There in public, they would get a picture of your interior and private life. That's a little bit like what repentance is. Repentance shows and tells what God has done in our interior lives. Repentance shows and tells what God has done in the sinner's heart, which is remove the heart of stone that is adverse to him and his ways and put into us a heart of flesh that loves him. Repentance is a very Christian word that we often don't think about. It means to change, to turn off of the highway of the world. ACDC might call it a highway to hell. And to step onto the narrow way of Christ. Repentance is the moral expression of faith. It is a renunciation of the old life. It is a radical recognition of God. Repentance is necessary because if we do not change, if we do not turn to God and his kingdom comes, then we will be the objects of his wrath. John is saying the king comes and with him comes judgment on rebels. So we go, well, why, why is repentance needed? Well, the king is bringing judgment and justice. And what John argues, speaking to Jews, to the crowds that are coming out to him, is that their biology, their physical descent from Abraham will not save them. He's arguing That their mere adherence to outward rituals will not save them from the wrath to come. He speaks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We'll back up though, verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. and His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so the crowds are mostly made up of Jewish people. And their being baptized is a recognition that their descent from Abraham is not enough to make them right with God. Matthew engages in hyperbole and even says all the people from all the cities, they're coming out to see John. They, they want to see what is happening. Something exciting is going on. John in the digital age would be trending on Twitter or if he were in a middle school, it would be like uh, when a little mini sort of fight breaks out you know, and all the kids gather around and they fight, fight, fight. Maybe that was just where I grew up. I don't know. But there's a crowd gathered round. Something is happening. John is baptizing people for repentance as they confess their sins. They are confessing that they are not right with God. And that they need God's coming king. They are making a personal commitment to the Lord. To make this personal commitment is an acknowledgement... ...that they are not included in the people of God merely on the basis of their ethnicity. Instead, they are coming, repentantly, confessing their sins and receiving the grace of God. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up. These are the religious leaders in Israel... They're really, really good people. And it's not clear if they're coming to be baptized by John, if they're coming to oppose his baptism, or if they're just sort of showing up to do surveillance, check out what's happening. You know, everybody's gathered around. What is this? But what is clear is that John takes notice of them. And he speaks to them thusly, "'You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, "'We have Abraham as our father.' "'For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. "'Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees.' Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. And so he's making the same point over again. As the crowds are baptized, it demonstrates they are not trusting in their ethnicity to make them right with God. And what he says to the Pharisees is your ethnicity cannot make you right with God. Additionally, your participation in outward rituals, apart from faith, is worthless. It will not make you right with God. His wrath will fall on you. He says, I I see your hearts. You're acting like snakes trying to slither away from flames. But you will not be able to snake your way out of God's judgment." is a word for us is it not to evaluate our own hearts on what basis do you think you will escape God's wrath is it because you have repented of your sins and trusted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that all who repent of their sin and trust in him Can have his death counted as their death? Is it because you trust in Christ, who is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God as king, that you have confidence that you will stand on the great and terrible day of the Lord as one who is righteous, as one who is on the side of the king, who is bringing his kingdom in its fullness? Where is your confidence that you are saved? from the wrath of God. I think it's all too common, and it is most unfortunate, that many people think that because of who their mommy and daddy are, they're right with God. Or because they perform outward rituals, that they have entered into the kingdom. I don't I think performing the rituals of Christianity is a it's essential, it's important. We can't be obedient to Christ without rituals. But we must be very, very careful lest we start to trust in the performance of rituals, rather in the Savior that those rituals are meant to honor and glorify. Maybe you have grown up in church and you've just said, I've always been a Christian. You've never really grappled with the reality that you have rebelled against God and that you need him to save you, that you need a savior. I want to consider today, I want to ask you to consider today you like the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. Is your hope and your confidence built on shifting sand? Things that will not be able to bear you up on the day of judgment. Mere ritual and biology and being really a good person cannot save you. Even the blood of Abraham was not enough to save the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Only the blood of Christ can ransom from the wrath of God. John makes clear that no one will escape God's wrath. And he does so by giving us four images, four images Look back at verse 7. We see the first one. He says, you brood of vipers. So, so, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? The image of snakes slithering away from fire. I think there's also a, a little bit of biblical typology here. Remember back in Genesis 3, God says that the seed of the serpent is always going to be at war with the seed of the woman, the snake crusher who is promised. And so we see the, the religious leadership in Matthew's gospel already set up very subtly as enemies of the cross, as those who are opposed to Christ. Second image bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's your second imagery, second piece of imagery. He says, You are like trees that are without fruit which will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He comes with another picture. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is stronger than I. This is Jesus, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The strong king will judge with fire. Last image, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. I mean, John is making it clear. The fire of God's judgment and wrath against sinners is coming with his kingdom. And if you do not want to be consumed by it, you must put your faith in the coming king. And this faith will be signaled by your repentance, symbolized in your going into the waters of baptism. John is is warning them. He's calling them to prepare themselves for the king. His baptism is for repentance. And he also is, makes it a point to contrast his baptism with Jesus' baptism in verse 11. You see that there? The goal of that is for John to say, I am pointing the way to the king and to the king's blessings. When the king comes, he will give you all of the blessings. He is the fountainhead of the waters of baptism. He is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit on all who come to him in faith. And those who are united to him in faith picture that reality, the reality of their faith and their repentance, the reality of having received the Holy Spirit by being immersed in the waters of baptism. Saying, Jesus comes and gives a greater baptism. My baptism is a shadow Christ's baptism is the substance. Those who are in Christ get his Holy Spirit. And those who are outside of Christ get his holy judgment. We have to make one more comment on verse 11 before proceeding. When we see the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit, it only appears as it does here. And in 1 Corinthians 12. And some have taken this and really done some odd things with it. They've taught that to become a Christian is to really have two experiences of grace. So you can become sort of a base level Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, and then you get baptized. And then you need to look for this second blessing, this second experience of grace, wherein you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, that is evidenced by all sorts of things. There's just not scriptural warrant for that. The New Testament sees all Christians, all who are united to the Lord Jesus by faith, as having all of the Holy Spirit. So that when we are baptized, it is symbolizing our union with Christ and our fullness of the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. Uh, have you ever been to Krispy Kreme? Okay, okay I see I hear some rumblings. No hands went up though. You go in there when the hot and ready sign is on. And you can sort of smell the delightful aroma as those donuts roll along on the conveyor belt and there is just dripping down that that. Wonderful sugary glaze. And man, it just gets on top of each donut. It covers them completely. Uh, nay, it baptizes them. Every Krispy Kreme donut gets the glaze. And friends, likewise, every Christian, everyone who comes to Christ in repentant faith, gets the Holy Spirit. This is what makes Jesus' baptism greater than John's. It introduces a new covenant wherein all who have faith, all who follow God, enjoy the blessing of the Holy Spirit. John here, though, is not Concerned with giving us a full doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He's calling our attention to the need to repent because the judgment of God is coming. I mean, really, if we were to identify this sermon, we might put it in the category of the turn or burn variety. You know, fire and brimstone preaching is not exactly in vogue anymore. Angry, axe-wielding, chaff-burning Jesus is deemed too dangerous for civilized ears, too offensive for the world, too wild for the church. The wrath of God is, is relegated to rooms filled with dust. It's part of years gone past. Not important for us to consider today. At least that's what's thought. But, friends, fire and brimstone and hell are as essential to the gospel message as grace, forgiveness, and heaven. You cannot be saved if there is nothing to be saved from. The good news of Christianity is that God saves his people, all who have faith in Christ. God saves us from God's wrath by God's Son. We cannot divorce. God's wrath from God's love, lest we split God asunder. In fact, his wrath is a necessary expression of his love. His holy justice is the result of his goodness. The coming of God means a burning justice against evil. A God without wrath has no answer for all the evil in the world. But the biblical God does have an answer for evil. He is full of wrath against sin. His kingdom comes with justice, with fire. Any conception of the kingdom coming without judgment for evildoers, only exists in the mind of the sentimental. God's wrath does not contradict God's love. It proves it. A love that pampers injustice and evil is not lovable. God cares for his creation. And he cares for his world. Therefore, he judges justly. And no one can slither out from underneath of God's holy judgment. We will either be joined to Jesus by his Holy Spirit in repentance and faith as portrayed in baptism, or we will be judged by fire. There's no other way to be made right with God. God punishes all evil. He does not just sweep it under the rug. Do you realize this? All sin has been or will be punished. If you are a Christian or if you will repent and trust in Jesus, your sin was punished on the cross on Good Friday. Your judgment day, when you put your faith in Christ, gets moved from the day of the Lord to Good Friday. It's finished. Sins are punished. You've been forgiven. You enjoy all the blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus. All sin has been punished. Or it will be punished. If your sin has not been punished in Christ if you refuse to repent and put your faith in Christ then your sin will be punished by or be punished in you you will bear the weight of God's wrath throughout all eternity beneath an unquenchable fire one christian Trust Christ. Trust Christ. He came and died so that whoever believes, whoever repents of their sin, shall not ever die, but live forever with Him and His people trust Christ and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I think it's, it's crucial that we distinguish between real repentance and mere ritual, between real repentance and worldly remorse. Real repentance is not just doing things. Oh, you know, I heard that being baptized is a good thing to do and so I went and I got baptized and I know that the Bible calls me to, to go and, and join a church and be a part of the church and so I say the right things and I go go to church. And, and it's really, it's just ritual, it's all lifeless. It's like a taxidermied animal. There's no life in it. Just performing the rituals, it's, it's not real Repentance. Nor is worldly remorse repentance. Repentance is not just feeling really, really bad about your sin. Oh, I feel so terrible about that. One I mean, examples of worldly remorse, you can think of Pharaoh in the Exodus. He gets really sad about what's happening. He even uses the word "repent. But his heart's not changed. Not devoted to obeying God. Or maybe you could think of Judas. He's really good at performing all the rituals. He follows Jesus. He hears every sermon Jesus ever preaches. And yet, Jesus never has his heart. He always has his hand in the money bag. Judas, he's remorseful but he never comes back to Jesus. I mean, he even throws his blood money away. He's very sad. He, he kills himself. He's full of worldly sorrow, but that remorse is not repentance. Paul distinguishes between worldly remorse and godly grief and 2 Corinthians 7:10 when he says godly grief produces a repentance that leads to life without regret to salvation without regret whereas worldly regr- worldly grief produces death mere ritual and worldly remorse are not real repentance Real repentance comes to Jesus and obeys Jesus, and when it disobeys Jesus, it comes back to Jesus. Real repentance confesses sin and bears fruit. Think of the Apostle Peter. Denies Jesus three times. But what does he do? He returns to Jesus restored by Jesus. He eats breakfast with Jesus on the beach. It's never too late for real repentance. And real repentance bears real fruit. And and we could talk about all sorts of good fruit that Christians bear. Fruit, of course, is a, a metaphor for behavior that is consistent with the character of God as revealed in his word. And we go a whole bunch of different directions. There are a whole lot of good fruit-bearing activities that we as church members ought to participate in, could participate in. But I'll be the first to tell you, not every possibility is a responsibility. You have to choose sort of which activities you will participate in as you follow Jesus. But there are some basic rudimentary fruit-bearing activities that all Christians must take part in. So some are optional, they're possibilities. I'm giving you responsibilities that are already yours going to give you five of them one baptism those who put their faith in christ jesus and who repent of their sins obey jesus's command to be baptized baptism is a one-time action and it is where we draw a line in the sand and say, I was once in darkness, and now I am light. I have been joined to the Lord Jesus by his Holy Spirit, and I will now live as a citizen in his kingdom. He is my king. I no longer follow the prince of the power of the air. Baptism pictures are death, the death of the old life going down into the watery grave, and our resurrection into the newness of life. All who enter the kingdom of God come through the waters of baptism. Baptism is one of the first steps of obedience to Jesus. It's it's one of the first acts of obedience in the Christian life. Baptism, here's my formal definition, if you're ready. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ and his body by immersing the believer in and raising the believer out of water. And it is a believer's act of publicly committing to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking the believer off from world. In baptism, we are joined to Christ. In baptism, we are joined to the church. In baptism, we are washed clean of our sins. In baptism, we go public with our faith. In baptism, we proclaim Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In baptism, we proclaim that we believe Jesus is coming again to make all things new. In baptism, we declare that there is a king We declare that Christ is Lord, that he's our king. In baptism, we are declaring, we believe that this king will bring his kingdom in its fullness. In baptism, we put skin on our confession of faith. Christians are baptized. Another fruit that is consistent with repentance is participation In the Lord's Supper. You want to think of it metaphorically. uh, If the church is a house, uh, baptism is the door through which we enter the house, and the Lord's Supper is the family meal. Or if we want to switch metaphors, baptism is where we say our marriage vows to Christ and His church, and the Lord's Supper is how we renew those vows. So what we do when we come to this table, we are renewing our vows to our king and to one another. And then we seal those vows with a covenant meal as we feast on the body and the blood of Christ. We are reminded that his body was given for us. His blood was shed so that we might live. We confess our sins to one another. A great time to confess sins is before you come to the Lord's table. It's an opportunity to practice fresh repentance. You know, confession of sin is, is hard, but it's so important. Think of it a little bit like this. If you If You're at your house, and you just, every time you come home from a long day, you 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 take your, your jacket off, and you drop it on the floor, and you take one outfit off, and you drop it on the floor, and your shoes, and you drop them on the floor, and then the next day, you go get something else out of your closet, and you repeat the process. You drop it all over your floor. Eventually, the room is going to be very, very muddy, very hard to navigate. The better thing to do is when you peel that clothing off take those shoes off is to pick them up off of the floor right away. Put them in their place right away. This is what good confession of sin does. We don't just leave our sins scattered about our rooms. We want to pick them up immediately. We want to make sure that we are more full of the Holy Spirit, more full of of fruits in keeping with repentance than we are of unconfessed sins. Come to the table as an opportunity to confess our sins to one another as we renew our commitment to one another. That's why we read our church covenant when we come to this table. We're reminding one another of the vows we have made as we receive the benefits of Christ and feast on him In the presence of God. Together. Another fruit of repentance. Worship together on the Lord's Day. We are doing what Christians do right now. Worshipping together. This, I think, is the easiest act of faith. Making the Lord's Day priority in our lives. Coming to worship our King together. And I actually think that helps us get to The fourth fruit that I would mention this morning, which is fellowship with one another throughout the week. Those of you who came to Sunday school this morning saw a little bit of this at the back end of Acts chapter 2. Believers worship together, and they spend time together throughout the week. We, as a church, have tried to create opportunities for you to grow in your friendship with one another. There are Bible studies, we have family groups, a number of other things. I want you to participate those, but they only only move the ball forward so far. If you're really to enjoy all the benefits of fellowship, you have to be intentional about getting to know other people in our church and spending time with them. You have to invite them over for dinner. You have to, to meet them out places and do things. Now, I don't expect all of us to know each other to the same degree, right? Jesus didn't even do that with his disciples. He had hundreds of disciples, and among the hundreds, he had 12 that followed him. And even among the 12, he had three that he was particularly close to. So so when I summon you to fellowship, it's not a summons to try and know everyone in equal measure. Now I do, I want you to cultivate those deep relationships that you have. I want you to be intentional about creating new relationships. And I want to recognize, like though you won't know everybody to the same degree, I expect you to treat one another with brotherly love and affection in Christ Jesus. We want to be a church that knows one another, that cares for one another, and that grows up in Christ together. And then lastly, those who are bearing the fruit of repentance, witness boldly. They witness like John the Baptist, who preaches the same message as Jesus, who preaches the same message as Peter. Again, in your Sunday school this morning, in Acts chapter 2, you had Peter bringing the same message. Repent and be baptized. The King has come. And is coming again. It's the whole point of this passage. The Lord Jesus is coming to bring judgment. And the surprise of the Gospels is this ironic twist. That the king who brings judgment comes the first time to bear judgment. To bear the judgment that his people have earned. So that when he comes the second time, they can be safe. The king lays down his life for rebels to make them citizens in his kingdom. Indeed, Christ came the first time. He was cut down like a fruitless tree. Strung up on that tree be hung there so that you and I can live. Look what John says in verse 14 of chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man too be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, look and live Look to Christ who hung on the cross for you beneath the fire of God's judgment. Look to him and live. Put your faith in him and have life. Have his death counted as your death. His life counted as your life. Look to him and live. Look not only to the cross but to the empty tomb and you will see your future Put your faith in Christ. It is to Christ we look. It is to Christ we look this morning. It is to Christ our King that we gather to give worship and honor and praise. It is to Christ we commit ourselves in the waters of baptism. It is to Christ we come to feast with around the Lord's table. It is the love of Christ that we express between one another in fellowship. It is to the Lord Jesus Christ that we witness boldly as we join our voices to the voices of John the Baptist and to the, joy, the voice of Peter and to the voice of all the Christians that have come before us. We join our voices to the voice of the church and we say, repent and be baptized. Repent, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. Look to Christ and live. The kingdom is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can know you as Father rather than as Judge. Because of your great mercy, we all deserve an eternity in hell. And yet you sent Christ so that we could have an eternity in heaven with you and your people. This is marvelous and wonderful. You are so good, we do not have words to describe your magnificence. And so we just bow our heads in prayer, giving honor to you. We sit silently and give you thanks. Lord, you are good. We give you praise.